Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're here with episode 99. And today we're going to take a little bit of a different spin on things um, and hand over to another interview that Tony did with Equity ASA and also Shares for Beginners. So Tony was interviewed by Phil Muscatello um, on a few things where he addressed what do financial planners offer experienced investors like those of the Australian Shareholders Association? He also touched on why young investors should think about financial planning in spite of the expense involved. So what Phil tries to do is, in, um, is interview industry experts so you learn what to do, what to ask, and ideally, how not to lose money. Over to these two. Listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast. If you go to see a financial planner, a financial planner's role is not a stock picker. We're not stockbrokers, we're not real estate agents. If you go to see any planner and that planner starts talking to you about product, you should show them your back and walk out the door. G'day and welcome back to Equity ASA, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today my guest is Tony Kofkin, managing partner at Kofkin Bond & Co, a leading financial planning firm. G'day Tony. G'day Phil, how are you? Good, thank you. Good. Thank you very much for joining us. So tell us a little bit about your history and the firm that you founded and now run. 29 years of history in this industry. I first started in 92 with National Mutual, so now defunct company, but at the time of the second largest insurer in Australia. I was fortunate enough to start at National Mutual during our last great recession. As Mr. Keating said, the recession we had to have and I always say there's nothing like starting a new job, especially in finance, in a perfect storm. And But that was also a year just before corporate superannuation, which a lot of your listeners would just take for granted if they turn up to work and get their superannuation paid. But back in the day, it never used to be compulsory, whereas it is now. So that had just actually started. So I actually started and specialised in corporate superannuation and Two years later, went out my own and still continue down that road and built a very large firm, which my wife and I sold in 2007 or 2006. But Kofkin Bond has grown over the last five years. We put a plan in place and we've grown to be one of Australia's, might be biased in saying this, but most prominent financial services firm now, financial planning and diversified financial services firm over the last five years. So with your all, all your experience in the industry, what changes have you seen? I mean, there's been plenty of changes, obviously, even just over the last two years. But what are some of the major things that you feel have affected the financial advice and planning industry? I think from the from the consumer's perspective, it doesn't matter which side of politics you vote for, but I'd get on my knees and, you know, thank Paul Keating every single day for what he did with the compulsory superannuation. That was probably from the consumer's perspective one of the biggest changes. And I think that also, in my opinion, my humble opinion, being one of the greatest saviors of the Australian economy over the last 30 years as well, when we just have, uh, we have an entire generation, as long as they turn up to work, never have to worry about their retirement. Whereas, you know, my parents' generation, their retirement was all saved for with after-tax dollars, unless they're working at, you know, government or large corporates. So, from that perspective, I think that was the greatest change for the economy and for the consumer. And as a result of that, you know, large employment when there's money always circulating through the economy. In regards to our industry, it has become extremely regulated. Some would say overregulated, but at the same time, if we just go back to more recent times with the Royal Commission, 
when money was mandated by law to go into superannuation, there were still very large commissions and fees being paid to advisors back then. And they all got banned probably about eight years ago now. So seven, eight years ago, which was great for the consumer. And so it actually became financial planning became about advice. Uh, so strategic advice, not just what I call lazy money, just investing lazy money. And then from the perspective of the Banking Royal Commission, one of the greatest aspects about that, although it, it hasn't been mandated by law, but the basically integrated selling when you go and see a you know a bank-owned financial planner and they had biases towards their products because that's what they had to do to use their KPI. So it's actually giving relevance more where people can actually see someone and know that that person doesn't have a master over and making them sell their product. So once again, it goes back to the old adage of something we've been doing for you know 25 years of actually providing advice for the individual. So I think a lot of those changes are necessary and magnificent for the industry, in my personal opinion. It'll halve the number of advisors. And once again, though, that's not a bad thing. I have heard that there is going to be a shortage of advisors. Is that the case? There's already a shortage of advisors. There's a couple of things to consider when you think there were 25,000 odd advisors in the industry three years ago. We're down under 20,000 now with the new education requirements, which is one of the greatest things that's happened. The industry did jump up and down. You know, I'm nearly 52 and there's a lot of people who have been in the industry as as long as I have the same or all my experience counts for nothing now. But realistically, if we're going to be regarded as a profession and be professionals as we should, that does come with an education as well. So you can't be a doctor by experience. You also have to be a doctor by knowledge and training. So from my perspective, I think that's been great. But as a result, there's been the average age of advisors uh, in Australia is close to 60 now. And a lot of them have just said, I'm not going to go and do all this new education. And they're leaving the industry in droves. So I would suggest that within three years, when their basic requirements come into law, at the end of December, where you have to have passed the face year exam, I would suggest there's going to be a mass exodus of probably another five to 6,000 advisors. And then after that, when they've got another year and a half to finish all their professional qualifications, I'd suggest there'll be another mass exodus after that as well. So I would suggest that the advisor numbers, you know, it could be as low as 12,000 people. But when you consider that a rough estimate over the next 20 years, there's $10 trillion changing hands through intergenerational wealth transfer. There is going to be a massive shortage of advisors because people don't leave school right now and say, I want to go and study to become a financial planner. They usually go into accounting, business studies, etc., and join our industry by default. So even though there are qualifications for our industry, it's not something that's on the front of mind for people when they leave school. It's a wonderful industry. But, you know, it, it is hard to find work in the industry. So there will definitely be a shortage of advisors, Phil. A lot of um, the members of the Shareholders Association are very engaged investors and yeah. would not be looking at a financial planner or advisor. Mm. Um, what's the added value that um, you do bring to um, people in their, in their investments? I mean, that that's a very open-ended question. It depends if we're talking to a... You know, I've got a 24 and a 22-year-old, so we're nearly 25. But it's if you're talking to a 25-year-old, you know, who can't even think of what life will be like at age 65, or if you're talking to a 55-year-old who's saying, "My oh God, I'm only 10 years away from actually retirement," so it's a very different conversation that you're actually having, whether you're in the accumulation phase or sort of that 
requiring an income base from your own investments. First of all, let's just start talking about the older investors, the ones who are retired or looking to retire soon. Yeah. The first thing I'll always say to anyone, it doesn't matter what age you are, is that if you go to see a financial planner, a financial planner's role is not a stock picker. That's the first thing. We're not stockbrokers, we're not real estate agents, and if you go to see any planner and that planner starts talking to you about product, you should you know, show them your back and walk out the door. The first thing you should do with any planner is form a relationship because if you don't have a relationship, you can't have trust. And that's from both perspectives. So you have to have trust in that advisor or that planner that you can open up and tell them what all your goals are and dreams. And if you don't trust them, you're not going to share those with them. If you're not going to share those goals and aspirations with them and even your own personal biases, you're going to not get the best results. So that's the first thing. Secondly, it's then based on strategy. So I'll give you an example of this. We've got a, you know, a very successful gent just recently. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, he is 61, his wife is 60. They've come to see us. They've got a lot of money in their personal name and they've got a lot of money in superannuation as well. We're talking millions. So from that perspective, they've obviously done quite okay throughout life to have accumulated that amount of investable wealth. From us, the first highlight for us is they're in cash, which surprised me having seven figures in cash in their personal name. I asked the reason why, and they said, well, we all went into a panic last year. Their advisor told them to go to cash. Their advisor then got sick, and a year later, they're still sitting in cash. Now, my biggest concern from that is have they actually gone and realized a capital gain in their personal name without actually realizing that by selling down assets and going to cash? So the first part on strategy is, okay, if we are going to do something here, do we have to look at what your realised capital gain is and try to reduce the tax liability on that? By They're both retired, but by you still using, for example, concessional contribution in the super, which this year is 25000 going to 27500 next year. So that's the first thing, and that's all based on strategy. The second part, because of their age, is that because they are approaching retirement, why do they have that cash in their personal name when they could put, and we're talking millions once again, when they could have that in their superannuation? And based on putting that in their superannuation, it's in uh, once they become, go into retirement or allocate a pension phase and they start drawing an income from that, the earnings within their fund is tax-free and then the income they take from their funds are also tax-free. So you'll notice here I have not spoken about whether they should invest in shares or property or property trusts or government bonds or anything like that at the moment. It's purely based on strategy. So for that 60-year-old, it's a case of how do we maximise putting money into super? Well, we can still put 100000 in as a non-concessional before the 30th of June for each of them this year. And then on the 1st of July, it's actually going up to we can use the bring forward rule because they're both under the age of 65 and put in another $330,000 each into a virtually a tax-free environment. So there's two parts of that strategy. First, reducing any tax liability they have. And then secondly, maximizing what they actually have within their superannuation. They can have the exact same investments in their personal name and pay tax on it, or they can have the exact same investments in their super fund and pay zero tax on the earnings. So that's the first thing I say for that 60-year-old. It's purely based on strategy. And then from that, if your gross income or gross earnings in the fund from your investments is exactly the same as the net earnings, 
well, that gets you a better result because rather than paying even you know 25% tax in your personal name, you're paying zero tax within the fund on the exact same earnings. So you're actually getting a better net result. So the first thing I say for that 60-year-old is then about strategy. So that has nothing to do right now about where your money should actually be invested. Okay, so that's for an older person and an older investor and retiree. What about younger people? A lot of younger people, they don't want to get financial advice because obviously it's very expensive to start with. But um, some would say there is a reason for them to seek this and it might be an investment in their future. Absolutely. It is interesting. There's a lot of lazy money. Uh, We deal with a lot of expats as an example. And we were the major sponsor of the Australia Day Born New York a few years ago. We were over there and we're talking to a few of these expats. And what was interesting is that they would have four or five hundred thousand dollars sitting in their superannuation fund, an industry fund or a corporate fund back here in Australia. They wouldn't have a clue where it was invested. And that shocked me because if you had five hundred thousand in the bank you, or in your personal name invested, you'd know exactly where it is. So that's the first thing. So when we're talking to that twenty-five year old, different goals. Let's take out the excitement of buying afterpay shares at, you know, 15 bucks and, you know, Tesla shares, you know, upon their listing. So we'll take out that exciting stuff and actually go back to strategy. Their strategy might be as an example of saying, I want to get into the property market. Now, a lot of people, what we call, um, you know, buy renters nowadays, where they actually buy investment properties and still continue to rent. A lot of the younger people, my parents' generation wouldn't even contemplate that. And even realistically, mine wouldn't either. But the next part is they might say, okay, I want to save $100,000 over the next five years. That's my goal because I want that 100000 to go towards my first property and I want it to be under 660000 because I want to get the first home buyer's grant as well and all the benefits that come with that. Well, I'm talking Victorian prices here, not New South Wales prices. Feel where you are. <laughs> but, it's, uh, <laughs> but also too, that 25-year-old is not necessarily interested in a quarter-acre block out in the burbs and having to mow the lawns every weekend as well. They're happy with, you know, whilst they're in a relationship, et cetera, of having a two-bedroom inner-city apartment where it might be you know, for example, around your Balmain in New South Wales or, you know, Collingwood's in Victoria. So for them, it's a different perspective on that property that they actually want. Now, the next part is then for the planner's perspective, okay, that's a short-term goal. Your long-term goal might be to have in today's dollar figures $100,000 in retirement, but that's 40 years away and they're not even thinking about that right now. So we'll go to the short-term goal first. The short-term goal is to save 100000 bucks. How are they going to date? They're earning good income. They might be on $70,000, $80,000. They've got good net income. And, you know, it's to quote Bernard Salt or Tim Gurner, you know, maybe they are spending a bit of money on avocado and toast every morning. Why not? Who well, does? why not? Who doesn't so, want to? <laughs> well, absolutely. I love it. <laughs> so it's uh, it's not, nothing like Vegemite and avocado on toast. <laughs> so <laughs> it's... Um, introduced my American friends to that. They still didn't like it. <laughs> so it's, uh, But the basis of that is everyone repays debt. If you have a debt, it's just a case of you always repay it. And it's just something that automatically happens. But it's really difficult sometimes to save on a monthly basis. Now, I'll give you an example of this is that both my adult children do work here. So they are in the industry. I mean, my oldest first started working here on a good salary. And I said to him, you're going to start paying board because they still live at home. 
And he said, absolutely, no, he's not. <laughs> so it's, um, he doesn't mind me having this conversation, by the way. And I said, okay, well, the other option is, of course, you go out and rent where you want to rent those suburbs. That's going to take up a nice chunk of your income. Or why don't we do this? You save what you would have had to pay in rent. You save that on a monthly basis. And on that monthly basis, after you're actually saving that, once you've actually saved $10,000, which it was close to anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to go and borrow $20,000 on that. So you've got a $30,000 investment. And what you're going to do is you're going to pay down that $30,000 investment over the space of two and a half years, which was the equivalent of what he would have had to pay in rent over two and a half years if he was him and a mate were renting a two-bedroom apartment. So he did that. And of course, now the interest on that loan is tax deductible too, and the principal repayments aren't. But all of a sudden, after two and a half years, he's now got $45,000. And then, of course, when COVID hit last year and the markets came down, it does help when you're in the markets. He didn't go and panic. Um, I've seen these ups and downs for 30 years now. But what he actually did was he only had like $7,000 left on his loan. So he actually reset it where he actually borrowed 50000 this time against his portfolio because you can borrow up to two times your net portfolio value, I should use as a disclaimer. He borrowed up to $50,000 at this stage and actually went and invested that because we still liked the underlying assets and shares that he owned, but they were just cheaper now. It was like a Boxing Day sale. Why buy your shirt for $100 on Christmas Eve when you can get the same shirt for 50 bucks on Boxing Day? You still love the shirt. It still feels the same. And that's where he went and did that. And of course, did tremendously well um, out of that as well. And now that 50000 though, is on a lot higher income now. He can actually pay that off over the space of two years without affecting his lifestyle. Because he has that goal of, I won't quote what he wants to save, but let's say, for example, that goal of saving $100,000. Basically, over the space of four years or three years, he's actually now got $100,000, which he can put towards that two-bedroom apartment in Collingwood now if he wanted to. So in other words, he's ticked off that goal. Now, in saying that, though, that's still not helping him towards his retirement, but he's now at that stage of, because he had to make those repayments monthly, otherwise he's defaulted on a loan, you know, whereas if he was just saying, oh, yeah, I won't put away my thousand bucks this month because I'm going to go to Bali with my mate. Well, you can go to Bali with your mate, but if you're renting a place, you'd still actually have to rent, if that makes sense. So I'm talking about someone who's still living at home here, obviously. But the basis of it is though, because he had a goal and a target to reach and he had debt, he had to make those debt repayments on that monthly basis. And he has accumulated a huge amount for himself over the space of his three and a half years working here, four years working here. He's actually accumulated a large amount by doing exactly what we tell every other 22, 23, 24-year-old. You've got some disposable cash. Use it towards a debt repayment on an asset that grows rather than a debt repayment on a visa card for another dress or pair of jeans that you didn't require. And that's that's a tough conversation to have. And my parents had it with me and feel I'm sure your parents had it with you and you know we have it with our children. But if you actually have that discipline of repaying a debt over a period of time in an asset that's appreciating in value, that's a tremendous result for him. That's a great piece of advice is that because it is, like you say, the point being it's hard to save. But um, if you owe the bank, <laughs> it's your problem and you've got to keep up those payments. <laughs> that's right. But then also, too, where a lot of people don't think of their retirement, 
It is interesting that when you actually do a proper review of, say, wherever their default superannuation fund is, where they don't even think about it, they've got their six, dollars $7,000 a year going into it. It's now worth, you know, their age 27, 28, it's now worth, uh, you know, $70,000, $80,000. If you've got a risk profile that comes out, say, 80% growth, 20% because you're young, and 20% defensive, and you have a look at your default fund and you do a proper analysis of what the actual returns, ignore all the marketing on TV and do a proper analysis of all the returns and the actual underlying asset allocation of that. The difference of you know a 2% return for the exact same risk over the period of 40 years can be the difference of, depending on your income, but anywhere from 700000 to $1.5 million end balance. Mm. 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but over time, it compounds. Oh, you know, Einstein said it was the greatest invention in the world is compound interest. Now, I look at, say, for a young person, think of superannuation as money that's just getting put away for you and you don't have to think about. But in saying that, it doesn't mean you shouldn't make it work for you no differently than what you would with the stuff in your personal name. Don't just ignore it because you can't touch it for 40 years because if you start only pay attention to it at age 60, you might have sold yourself short of, you know, five or $600,000 in retirement. As I said, Phil, I'm nearly 52 and I never thought I'd get to this age. You know, I started, as I said, 29 years ago in this industry. But, you know, I'm glad I took some wise advice from from people who were far smarter than me when I was a younger man. Yes, and uh, that's hopefully what we're trying to impart here as well. Yeah. Okay, we're coming to the close of the interview, but um, I just wanted to review a story that you told me last time we spoke. That's about the woman who came to see you and uh, didn't want to take any risk with her money. (laughs) That was a a great um, uh, illustration of risk and how people perceive risk. Yeah, now, I was a young man back then. I was probably about 30-odd. We get a lot of referrals from very large accounting and law firms. And this lady who, when you're 30, everyone seems really old, but she did remind me of my grandmother. You know, she was probably close to 70 at the time. And she came to me and I still remember her wriggling her finger at me. You know, it's like my sister Melania in grade two telling me off, wiggling that finger. And she said, now you listen to me, young man. I don't take any risks with my money and I don't want to take any risks with my money. But I've been told I should come to see you to just have a look where things are to see if they can improve for me. And I said, that is fine. That's not an issue at all. And now when she told me that, my very first reaction, and this is my bias and, you know, whether it was just a bias as a 30-year-old or my biases in general, my immediate thought was she only likes term deposits. Now, back then, term deposits were earning like 4%. So it's, you know, unlike today. Um, but based on that, it was, it was like, okay, so I had those biases of she's just going to have, you know, turn deposits. She pulled out an investment portfolio where she had oh, probably about close to $3 million. Her idea of not taking risk, she was invested 100% in shares and she lived off the dividends. Now, those shares, though, were your normal top 10 usual suspects. This is even before Telstra listed. But basically, it was your BHP, your Rio Tinto, and all your banks. And back then, everyone had 500 Colesmeyer shares for the discount card. So the basis behind it was her idea of risk was she will only have blue chip and she doesn't want any of this tech rubbish um, so <laughs> that was out there. Probably a good move at the time if you're talking prior to year 2000. But from that perspective, someone's idea of risk can be very, very different So her idea of not taking any risk was only having those blue chip stocks. 
Uh, it's purely Australian shares is all she owned, but only having blue chip stocks. I mean, we don't have, when I say we don't have any biases, we don't even have an Australian bias when it comes to our own investment portfolios. I think we're in growth only about 6% Australian at the moment. But that's an example of our biases can actually reflect on the clients. And once again, if your listener is speaking to a financial plan and the financial plan is trying to push their biases on them, well, then once again, their plan is not listening and time to walk. But it's a case of people can have biases. They might have had bad experiences. And for her, it was quite simple. She was not going to take risks with her money. But she wasn't a term deposit lady. She was a shares. And a lot of those shares were purchased in the 70s too. So there were unbelievable capital gains, tax-free gains in there. And I just looked at that and I thought, wow. <laughs> so it was <laughs> What great. a beautiful portfolio. <laughs> what, and it was. <laughs> so, yeah, when you could buy BHP at $4 before all the share splits we've had. <laughs> so it's a, and Commonwealth Bank upon listing. Yeah, that was, a, that was a very nice portfolio. And we're talking 20-odd years ago here, Phil. So, you know, even better today. Yeah. Tony, can you give us some uh, details about how people can get in touch with you if they're interested in finding out more about um, Kofkin Bond & Co? Yeah, so thank you, Phil. We have offices in Melbourne and Sydney. Our principal in Sydney is Matthew Leach. Our website is www.kofkin, K-O-F for Fred, K-I-N for Nelly, Bond as in James Bond, .com.au. If you're Sydney-based, you can speak to Lucy or Matt up there. And if you're Melbourne-based, you can speak to Tony, Josh or Sean down here. So phone number is 03 for Melbourne, 9112675. And, of course, we'll put all of that in the episode notes. We do have all our socials as well, Facebook, etc. We have our own podcast, which people can listen to on Spotify as well, which is Kofkin Bond Podcast. Okay, Tony, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. My absolute pleasure, Phil. The company and or guest has contributed to the costs associated with producing this episode of Equity ASA. Important, please remember these podcasts are produced to provide information and education and they're not designed to provide financial advice, nor are they a recommendation to buy shares in the companies featured or discussed. The Australian Shareholders Association does not endorse or favour any specific commercial product or company. Please obtain independent professional advice before investing. We value your feedback and questions. Please contact us at share at asa.asn.au if you have any suggestions for guests or specific questions you'd like answered.